Hey there, it's Tom Ryan, founder and CEO of ICR. Before we get into the next episode, I wanted to ask that you subscribe to the show. It'll help us get even more unique and interesting guests on the podcast and in turn continue to educate management teams and the growing ecosystem that creates value for fast-growing private and public companies. And while you're at it, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating. Very much appreciated. To understand markets, you have to understand history. It's really important to have context, historical context. There's nothing more valuable than experience. And when you've seen almost everything in the markets through every business cycle, you become quite adept at seeing around the corner. I think the new era is all about regime change and the new paradigm. And I think this is about a serious pivot as I've seen in my 38 years on Wall Street. Being a public company can be hard. Small missteps can have outsized consequences. I'm Tom Ryan, founder and CEO of ICR, and over the last 20 years, we've helped thousands of companies understand and navigate the stock market and the media. We'll demystify these and other increasingly complex stakeholder groups so you can focus on what you do best, building your company, and unlocking your true potential. This is Welcome to the Arena. It's always a pleasure to speak to a grizzled veteran who has decades of experience leading hundreds of deals that have raised billions of dollars. Here to share that wisdom is Greg Nabhan, Chairman of the America's Equity Capital Markets, as well as Managing Director of the Consumer and Retail Team at Bank of America. Greg is responsible for the origination, IPO valuation, structuring, book building, price discovery, and aftermarket performance of equity transactions. He has almost 40 years of experience on Wall Street. He's led over 400 deals, raising over $265 billion for companies around the world, including 115 IPOs totaling $50 billion. Prior to joining Bank of America in 2008, Greg worked at Morgan Stanley for 13 years, where he was a managing director in the Equity Capital Markets Group, and he has a BA in Economics and Political Science from Columbia University. Let's enter the arena with Greg Nabhan. You know, Bank of America is um, obviously one of the most powerful important banks in the world. When I joined Bank of America, it was the teeth of the financial crisis. And the bank asked me to join as a vice chairman in equity capital markets to help build out their practice. And about a month after I joined, we bought Merrill Lynch. And one of the things I talked to my boss about was, who was then head of global banking, I said, you know, the, the good news is I told you we could do it. Uh, the bad news is I'm not sure I'm going to be on the platform given what's happened. But uh, I managed to survive that M&A transaction. And obviously, there was an incredibly tumultuous period. But, you know, we've got an organization with incredible breadth. We have an organization with incredible capability, whether it's from an advisory standpoint, research, trading, sales. We have 750 institutional sales and sales traders that cover 3,000 institutions around the world, including every sovereign wealth fund. 
of course, a fantastic balance sheet. We've got uh, uh, $4 trillion under management, $400 billion of which is liquid with 19,500 financial advisors. So we have a great trading distribution system and obviously very strong from a research and advisory standpoint. So and the other thing we have is we have an incredibly diversified model. And so we have a consumer bank, we have a corporate and an investment bank, we have a wealth management business. So we have a lot of things that can create stability, which is exactly what's happening in unstable times. So I'm really proud of the bank and, and, and proud to work here. And certainly if you're a, a CEO board member, you're going through a, maybe a, what is the one and only biggest transaction of your life, engaging with you guys for an IPO or something like that. There's so many resources that you can draw in to really help create value both for the company and then for those executives personally. Is that correct? That's correct. You know, there is no more important transaction than a CEO, a board, a private equity organization can engage in than, you know, a major strategic M&A assignment or an IPO. Those are the two products on Wall Street that are the most important from a strategic standpoint. They get the most attention. The stakes are huge. And so we're fortunate to be, you know, one of the most powerful players, both in M&A and in ECM or IPOs. And, you know, you're absolutely correct. I mean, there's a tremendous sense of focus and intensity around those types of transactions. And we got to get them right. And that starts with advice and the best advice, no matter what. Those are the rules of the game. Shifting gears, you know, let's talk about the last three years, which have been absolutely insane, probably by any standards other than 2008 and nine that you described earlier. Take us through what you saw from your seat kind of through the first half of 2020 and then just this massive, crazy rebound of business at the tail end of 20 and kind of all throughout 21. I love that question, Tom, because to understand markets, you have to understand history. It's really important to have context, historical context. And if you think about the last 15 years, basically since the financial crisis began in 2007, you know, we lived in a world of effectively free money, right? So zero interest rates. 12 of the 15 years were basically close to zero. Very low inflation, very low volatility, both equity vol, interest rate vol, and FX vol, and rising valuations. Because of the three major events, historic events, historic moments that have occurred in the last two and a half years, which is, you know, the largest global pandemic in 100 years, uh, the largest land war in Europe in 75 years, and of course, the highest rate of inflation in the United States and other, part, and other countries around the world in 40 plus years, these things have had a gigantic impact on the world. So what happened was, is that as COVID was sweeping through Asia. This is a really, I think, interesting point. You saw interest rates plummeting. I happen to be in China on business in uh, the second week of January. I noticed that as when I got back in February, yield, bond yields in the United States and around the world were plummeting. And what that was, was the bond market anticipating that COVID was kind of sweeping through China, sweeping through Asia on its way to Europe and ultimately coming, of course, to the United States. And the bond market sensed that. And the bond market was way ahead of the stock market. So there was a catastrophic economic collapse, you know, a market collapse, but more importantly, an economic collapse. And the first, I would say, six to eight months of 
of 2020, once COVID slammed into the shores of the United, in Europe and the United States, we were really focusing on saving companies. We were just like, okay, it's obviously not about the IPO business. It's about getting liquidity and capital to companies that need it to save the companies, save jobs, help the companies, et cetera. And of course, the United States government was incredibly involved in this as well, but as were we. So we did a ton of convertible bond deals, a ton of follow-on offerings, block trades, trying to get liquidity and capital for companies so that they could weather the storm. So that was the first, I'd say, six to eight months. And then the market began to sort of find its legs and stabilize and then began to lift as there was a sense that things were kind of moving towards what it was going to be catastrophic, but perhaps not as catastrophic as everyone had feared. And uh, that effectively reopened the IPO market. So if you think about what was going on in IPOs, for most of the period post the financial crisis, it was all about long duration, which is, you know, EBITDA and cash flow, as you know, far into the future, high growth, EBITDA, cash flow, no profitability. As the market basically absorbed that, and we were taking companies public on revenue multiples, and there was a lot of speculation in meme stocks and SPACs, and you saw it in crypto and that kind of thing. As we moved past 2021, the latter part of 2021, it became obvious that inflation was a massive problem for the world. And the market began to anticipate that the Fed was going to put the brakes on. And remember, there's been, you know, 11 incidences in the last 62 years at eight out of the 11 times the Fed has crash landed the economy. So the Fed is on a rampage. The Fed's been on a rampage. We've had three consecutive rate hikes of 75 basis points. Fed fund futures are basically forecasting another 75 basis points, which is unprecedented, even back in 1980 under Volcker. And so the Fed is slamming the brakes. The Fed's going to win. They're undefeated. I describe it as, you know, there are three undefeated entities in the world, Mother Nature, Father Time, and the United States Federal Reserve. They're going to win. They're going to break the back of inflation. The question is, do they crash land the economy? And, you know, the odds are if they did it eight out of the 11 times, they crash landed. So it's about a 70% probability. So we do think we're going to have a recession. We think the recession will be hopefully mild, but I'm also careful about using the word mild when it comes to recession, because as you know, it's never feels mild when you're into the teeth of it. But, you know, that basically closed the IPO market. And when the market does reopen, we think it's going to reopen and look very differently than it did previously, which was, it's all going to be about short duration EBITDA cash flow today. You're a historian of this stuff. I mean, has there been a year with fewer IPOs? I know there's been about 15 that were over hundred million, which is very low, but I mean, is this on par with 2008, nine, or even longer than that? It's definitely on par with 2008. Uh, the IPO market began to reopen in 09. There were, there were IPOs in the beginning of 2008, the first half. And then when Lehman Brothers collapsed, obviously that shut the market. It, it also reminds me, Tom, I remember in 94, the, the pound sterling collapsed and Mexico defaulted. That was a very tough period. In 1988, post the crash, I would say in 1988, the market was incredibly quiet. So this is absolutely on a par with those types of, you know, very, very subdued capital formation environments. But one thing I would say is that the IPO market in the United States, it always rebounds and it basically tracks U.S. GDP. And so if we do have a recession in the fourth quarter, first quarter of 2023, and the economy begins to recover as we get into the end of the first half, we expect that the IPO market will reopen. But again, reopen in a very different way than it was open previously. 
are there any industries right now that are are favored to kind of open the IPO market or what are the qualities that they have that that they can get liquidity in this time frame? I think for sure, energy-related companies. I think financial services companies are going to do well, those that are profitable, right? But also in tech, healthcare, and consumer, there are going to be a bunch of companies that go public, I believe, beginning sort of, you know, maybe halfway through or the second quarter of 2023. So what are they going to look like? Well, as I mentioned, they're going to be profitable. They're going to be growing, but they're going to have be growing with profits, EBITDA and free cash flow, number one. They're going to have strong economic modes. They're going to have low leverage. They're going to have management teams that think and act like owners of the business. They have strong ROIC. There'll be businesses that with tremendous economic resiliency that have proven that on a through the cycle basis during the decline in 2020, during the bear market in 2022, including the subsequent recession, if in fact we have one, have shown to be companies that can weather the storm. Those are the types of businesses that are gonna have capital and I believe that those are the types of companies that will go public in the new era. Because I think the new era is all about regime change and the new paradigm. And I think this is about a serious pivot, as I've seen in my 38 years on Wall Street. In all your travels, and I know you're on a plane all the time, and you're talking with everybody, talking with companies, do you think that boards and management teams kind of understand the valuation reset yet? They may say, hey, I'd love to go public, but this is the valuation we have in mind, and maybe that's a 2021 valuation. The way I think about it, it's, and I'll, I'll relate it to the consumer space. In the old days, meaning you know, two years, <laughs> last year, yeah. Uh, yeah, the old days, I would say that the highest quality, highest growing consumer related companies, you know, would trade at a twenty, even a twenty five, maybe sometimes a thirty multiple of EBITDA. Those types of businesses are probably going to trade more like you know, call it twenty to twenty two. Those are the best in class. The really good companies that would trade eighteen to twenty are probably more like fourteen to sixteen times forward EBITDA, and the somewhat you know more normalized. I don't want to say average, but you know, good solid companies instead of trading 15 to 17 or 14 to 16 will probably trade 10 to 12. And that's the new era. And by the way, what's interesting about this to me is that remember, Fed funds, Fed funds have been moving higher, of course, as you know. This has been amongst the worst bond markets in US history, right? So, you know, we had a bond market crash in 1920 that ended with the Treaty of Versailles. We had a bond market crash in 1947, which ended in the Marshall Plan, and we had a bond market crash in 2022. This was a bond market crash more than a stock market crash, at least so far. And so what I would say is that I think we're probably a third to 50% of the way through. It does take time. But remember, companies should only go public if they have a three, five, and 10-year view. They should not be going public if it's like, hey, I want a quick flip and I want to sell a bunch of stock to the market and get out. That's not what the IPO market is about. It's about long-term capital formation, playing the long game, and for CEOs and CFOs to demonstrate great stewardship of capital, uh, high integrity, and a great strategic vision for their business. Following the market and transaction boom of 2021, Predicting what will happen with next year's IPO window isn't as straightforward as many people would like, but it's always useful to gear market sentiment and look at what the best performing companies have in common. What has worked? Well, the companies that have positive free cash flow and have beaten raise. So, you know, they basically either managed expectations or beaten expectations in terms of their forecasts on a consistent basis, number one. 
What has not worked, of course, is companies that have consistently unprofitable business models and or have missed their numbers. So that's number two. And But I would say that amongst the top investors in the world at the big mutual fund complexes in Boston, New York, LA, San Fran, Baltimore, et cetera, London, big sovereign wealth funds, it's amazing how resilient these people are and how they mark to market, they reset, and they want to own great businesses at fair valuations. They don't want to overpay for them. They don't want to overpay, but they're willing to pay a fair price. And our strategy, of course, is to make sure that in ECM, everyone feels like they got a fair deal, both the seller of securities as well as the buyer of securities and have make sure that we you know maximize price maximize distribution quality meaning the best the highest quality institutions in the world and then have a good solid aftermarket which we define as sort of you know up 10 or 12%. We talked a little bit about the Fed Greg and how they're undefeated and you know you always heard that phrase growing up in your career don't fight the Fed and boy is that is that true? What's required for a pause in the rate hikes right now? What do they need to see to change kind of their stance on, on the rising rates? If you think about right now, the United States government is involved in doing something incredibly unusual, which is basically to take the unemployment rate up in the United States. Let me say that again. The U.S. government is trying to raise the unemployment rate in the United States. Think of how counterintuitive that is. The last time they tried to do that, they did it, was 1980. So 40, you know, two years ago. And so why are they trying to do that? And how do they do it? Well, the way they do it, they have a blunt instrument. It's interest rates. I mean, if headline inflation is at eight and core is at six, they're trying to bring it down to four and then get Fed funds above the rate of inflation, call Fed funds four and a half to five, which is, by the way, where they've averaged over the last 75 years. So the last 75 years, Fed funds have averaged four and a half to five percent. So we're just returning to normal. Yeah. We're not doing something unusual. It's just normalizing the yield curve, right? Short Fed funds are going back to where they traded basically the last 75 years. So the Fed takes uh, Fed funds above the rate of inflation. Inflation moves lower, but by taking Fed funds above the rate of inflation, you basically move unemployment up. That takes the heat out of wages, and that takes inflation down. That's how they're going to do this, and they're going to do it. Like they, they, they do it every time. But as you say, don't fight the Fed, but it's a very, very painful process. And I will also argue that the Fed will take recession over inflation 10 to 1, because inflation crushes the middle class and working class in this country, crushes them. Yeah. So the Fed is is trying to uh, jam on the brakes, yet the politicians are spending money like crazy and flooding the system. If there's a party change in the House or the Senate, I would imagine that all that spending kind of gets paralyzed. And that's not a terrible thing in a rising rate environment. Totally agree. I mean, it's, it is somewhat a juxtaposition to have on the one hand, the Fed raising rates to slow the economy. On the other hand, the politicians still aggressively promoting a very forceful spending. We'll see what happens. But, you know, the market's like gridlock. And I would argue that, you know, most things in life, whether it's business, politics, the really good stuff takes place at the center. You got to get to the middle. That's my judgment. I heard a lot of mixed messaging on the health of the consumer. What's your take on the consumer right now? You know, the consumer, we think she's doing okay. We do business with 50% of the households in America in some capacity, 50%. 
And so our credit card data is basically showing that the consumer so far has been, you know, kind of weathering the storm, but like it can change very, very quickly. But so far we have not seen a very, very negative reaction on the part of the consumer in the United States. But there's clearly signs that it's slowing, but it's not, it's nowhere near crushing or catastrophic as of yet. Switching gears, Greg, I think your career is so fascinating because it's been over a super long period of time. You've seen everything. You're kind of a historian. But for you personally, what's what's the favorite deal that you've worked on in your career? It's probably hard to narrow it down to one, but what pops into your mind? I've got a few, I would say. But in 1991, I worked on the British Telecom privatization for Her Majesty's government. And that was I was a young man on Wall Street, and that was kind of thrilling to deal with such a you know, a prestigious transaction or a big, huge privatization that meant so much to a country. And so that was really fun. I've worked on a bunch of deals out of Asia, China. I've worked on a bunch of deals out of Europe, of course, Latin America. Um, I worked on the Petrobras transaction, the $40 billion raise for Petrobras back in 2012. I took Chipotle public. That was really thrilling. I took the Chicago Mercantile Exchange public. We took it public at 20. The stock went to 800. That was a thrill. And then, of course, in the last couple of years, you know, I took Dutch Bros public and that was an incredible experience and strong performers like Exponential Fitness and others. Cool brands. Going back to uh, some of the folks who listen to this or, you know, in management teams, and I always think like ego is such a killer of, of CEOs. You know, they really talented at what they do. And I always think like, once you get to the top, you got to be measured. What's the mindset of management teams when they're going through an IPO? Where have you seen transactions that have just completely blown up and failed because of something a management team or a private equity firm has done? The home run deals are easy to talk about. How about stuff that kind of blows up and just can't get out of its own way? So I I think the biggest challenge for management teams, CEOs in particular, and CFOs, because I'm always, I always try to remind people that the CFO is the CEO of the IPO, because we need the CEO to run the business and manage the organization and set strategy, et cetera. But I think the big mistake that some management teams have made, and this is not just on the part of management teams, I think Wall Street makes this mistake, private equity firms make this mistake, is pushing them too hard on a set of projections that are just not achievable to maximize the IPO price. And as you said it, the IPO is the beginning, not the end. It's not the end game. It's actually the beginning of the beginning. Of course, you want to maximize the price in the sense that you want to get a fair transaction. But what you really want to do is have a series of two, four, six, eight, 10, 12, 20 quarters in a row where you're meeting expectations, beating expectations. You've set a model that you're very comfortable that you can really manage and beat. And that's how you you create such tremendous value. And I would say to you that if you look at the Microsoft IPO back in 1986, if you look at the Amazon IPO back in 1997, Google back in 2005, those businesses, uh, they really focused on culture, they really focused on cash flow, and they really focused on continuity. And I always think of it as the three C's, culture, cash flow, and continuity. And if management teams think about those three things, and then don't get pushed, don't get pushed too hard by the bankers, don't get pushed too hard by a private equity firm or venture capital or what have you, put out a model that you can really deliver on, and then focus on culture, cash flow, and continuity, you're going to have a great experience. 
Yeah, that is just tremendous advice because sometimes you'll see companies go public on these aggressive valuations and they're just set up to fail. What do you think about ESG? Obviously, every company has to wake up and embrace that. Do you think the pendulum will swing in the other direction or is are we kind of full steam ahead on, on ESG and every company and private equity group incorporating it into everything that they do? I think ESG is an important part of any business and any IPO. But I'm careful to not lose sight of the forest for the trees, which is really, it's about math. Yeah. <laughs> it's about the numbers. Like you got to deliver the numbers. You can have as much ESG as you want. If you don't deliver the numbers, you're dead. It's not a popularity contest. It's not like, hey, who's captain of the football team? No, no, no. This is about math, delivering the numbers. So I do think ESG matters. I will say that in governance, most big investors are like, you know, if these guys are not operating in the best interests of of the company and its shareholders, I'm not going to debate it. I'm not going to sue. I'm not going to, I'm just going to sell. I'm just like, if you guys are not going to operate in the best interests of all the shareholders, I'm going to sell. I think we all owe it to, you know, the country and the world to be as, you know, as environmentally as sustainable as we can, but we also have to deliver, you know, growth profits, return on invested capital, free cash flow, et cetera. Since, you know, mid 2020, we've all been on uh, these uh, Zoom calls, but in terms of like the roadshow of an IPO itself, do you think that will remain virtual or are we going back to in-person when the window opens up? So I think it's hybrid. And I will say that in my mind, I think there are already accounts in which without naming names in Boston, in New York, in Baltimore, who are saying, we want to see these management teams in our building. If you want us to participate, you got to show up. Now, I will say in like a lot of the testing, the water meetings, which are the pre-marketing kind of meetings that we host, they're all going to be done over Zoom. I could definitely see us going to LA, Boston, New York, of course, Baltimore, but like the days of like a nine day roadshow and go to London and probably not necessary because we want to make sure that we can be as efficient and get to as many people as possible. So I think it's a hybrid, but I think the big four cities in the US will be going physically. My last question, Greg, is did you have a mentor in your career that's made a huge difference to you? One or two people who kind of really impressed you and kind of brought you along? You know, Tom, I'm so glad you asked that. I've had a lot of people who have really helped me. And I'm grateful. I'm so humbled by how many people, men and women, who wanted to help me and gave me guidance. And sometimes when I think back on my career, most of the time I listened. And when I didn't listen, I paid a pretty big price. And so, you know, I've learned to sort of, you know, buy humility and sell hubris. And, (laughs) right? And so, buy humility and sell hubris. Love that. Yeah. And so, Yes, I've been incredibly supportive and I've, I've, I'm so grateful to have had that. And I, and I try to do the same now for others and, you know, who are, who are coming up behind me because it's been, it was so valuable to me as a Wall Street you know, banker. A global powerhouse like Bank of America offers incredible resources to growing companies but it's having the knowledge base and internal connectivity that brings such massive benefits to issuers and buyers. And that's where Greg comes in. I 
Now, welcome to the arena. We're working really hard to bring you exciting guests and great content. If you found this episode insightful, subscribe to the show on your podcast app and leave us a five-star rating. The more the show grows, the more interesting voices we can have on the podcast. And in turn, that should demystify a lot of the stakeholders around public companies and soon-to-be public companies. Thanks for listening. I want to thank Greg for sharing his experience and insights from a long and exciting career. Not everyone can stick around on Wall Street for almost four decades, and that's a direct testament to his great instincts and strong track record of helping companies raise capital and get to the next level. This is Tom Ryan. We'll see you next time back in the arena. References to specific stocks are not intended to be recommendations for specific trading behavior. Comments presented on this podcast are intended for informational and educational purposes only and do not represent opinions or recommendations on whether to buy, sell, or hold shares of a particular stock. All investors are advised to conduct their own independent research into individual stocks before making a trading decision. In addition, investors are advised that past stock performance is no guarantee of future price performance.